You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 339 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Shortly after 10 o'clock on the night of Wednesday, July 1st, 1863, Major General George Gordon Meade left Tawnytown, Maryland and rode north to assume command of the field at Gettysburg. For the 14 or so mile ride, Meade was accompanied by Brigadier General Henry Hunt, his Chief of Artillery, Brigadier General Governor K. Warren, his Chief Engineer, and by Captain William Payne, one of Warren's aides. Several staff officers, including Captain George Meade Jr., as well as a dozen or so troopers from Company C, 2nd Pennsylvania Cavalry, joined them. The moon hadn't yet risen when Meade's party took to the crowded road. Congested wagon traffic from both Hancock's 2nd Corps and Hunt's artillery reserve forced the riders into the fields and through meadows, woodlots, and farmyards. Still, according to Meade Jr., it took the party just 15 or 20 minutes to reach the spot where the 2nd Corps had bivouacked for the night. While Winfield Scott Hancock had been gone on his errand to Gettysburg, the Corps had been under the temporary command of Meade's friend, Brigadier General John Gibbon, and now Meade quickly conferred with Gibbon, making certain he knew that Meade wanted the Second Corps up and moving, quote, at the earliest daylight. As Meade returned to the road, riding north, his thoughts no doubt turned to Hancock's and Warren's descriptions of the ground at Gettysburg. Both men had come back to Army headquarters from Cemetery Hill and arrived at Tawnytown in time to give reports before Meade departed. Now, as Meade neared Little Round Top, he would have hurried past hundreds of parked wagons. Passing a section of artillery, his party became hemmed in by stone walls topped by rail fences. Although they were slowed, the commanding general's party continued on toward Cemetery Hill, passing through a maze of stalled traffic. Shortly before ascending the southwest base of the hill, they passed a small, clapboard house that showed brightly in the moonlight, which by that time had risen and generously accompanied them over the last portion of their ride. The small house they passed belonged to the widow, Lydia Leister. 
Passing Mrs. Leister's house, Meade's party began their ascent of Cemetery Hill. Some Union guns would have been visible off to their left front, while in the bright moonlight, the shadowy figures of soldiers from both the 1st and 11th Corps could be seen where they rested in bunches or were spread out behind several stone walls that cut across the landscape. In no time, the party of riders reached Evergreen Cemetery and approached the distinctive two-story arched gatehouse and the Baltimore Pike just beyond. Dismounting at the gatehouse shortly after midnight, George Meade had finally arrived at Gettysburg, a place he had never seen, but where he was prepared to continue the battle that had started there the day before. After arriving at the Evergreen Cemetery Gatehouse, Meade awakened 11th Corps Commander Otis Howard. Within a half hour or so, they were joined by the 12th Corps' Henry Slocum, 3rd Corps Commander Dan Sickles, and the 1st Corps' Abner Doubleday, each of whom echoed the others in their thoughts about the defensive value of the ground there at Gettysburg, on the hilltop and on the heights and ridge lines south of town. Having already heard much of the same about the ground there from Hancock and Warren before leaving Tawnytown, and having already issued the orders hours earlier that would assemble the Army of the Potomac at Gettysburg, Meade told the gathering of generals, I am glad to hear you say so, gentlemen, for it is too late to leave it. George Meade hadn't slept much since assuming command of the Army three nights earlier, and tonight he would get no sleep at all. There was that brief discussion outside the gatehouse with Howard, Slocum, Sickles, and Doubleday, where they no doubt pointed out the flickering campfires of the enemy out to the southwest and continuing north before wrapping around the town to the east, about one mile in each direction. But after that conference, Meade then set off in the bright moonlight to examine the ground south of Gettysburg. Otis Howard and Artillery Chief Hunt accompanied Meade on his ride, along with several staff officers, including Meade Jr. Also coming along were Captain Payne and one of Hunt's aides, Lieutenant Charles Bissell, both of whom were known to have a talent for map-making and sketching terrain. As the party of officers rode south along what would later be dubbed Cemetery Ridge and toward two hills that would become known as Big and Little Round Top, they stopped briefly at times to discuss positions and make observations about the ground before moving on. Payne and Bissell sketched, as best they could from the saddle, what they could see of the terrain and made notes regarding the locations where Meade indicated he wanted each of his various corps to position themselves. At about 4 a.m., with the survey complete and dawn near to breaking, Meade and his staff dismounted at the small, modest home of the widow Leister that sat alongside the Tawnytown Road, just south of Cemetery Hill and on the eastern slope of Cemetery Ridge. For the rest of the battle, Lydia Leister's little white house would serve as Union Army headquarters.
As George Meade envisioned it, the line taken up by the Army of the Potomac, there just south of Gettysburg, would stretch from flank to flank for some three miles in length, and from above would have resembled a large fish hook. Culp's Hill on the Army's right was the barb of the hook. From there, the bend of the hook curved around the keystone of the position, Cemetery Hill. The long shank of the hook ran south along Cemetery Ridge. The eye of the hook was Little Round Top on the Army's far left. Again, we'll stress the importance of looking at a map in order to really understand what we're talking about when we say the Federal line resembled a fish hook. And besides looking at a map, there's really no substitute to heading to Gettysburg and visiting the battlefield, and if you're able to, actually walking the ground. Rich and I have also rented bikes and ridden them over the battlefield, which is also an excellent way to gain an appreciation for the lay of the land. Really, understanding the nature of the terrain is essential to understanding what happened at any Civil War battle but it's especially important for anyone wanting to take in and appreciate what happened at this sprawling three-day battle at Gettysburg, both with regard to the commander's decisions and with regard to the experiences of the men who fought here. So, at the very least, look at a map, and if you're able to, definitely pay a visit to the battlefield and drive around it, or if you can, actually walk the ground. Getting back to our examination of the Federal's fishhook line at Gettysburg, it's important to note that both flanks would be anchored on high ground and the compact nature of the position provided Meade with the benefit of strong interior lines. Although Meade seems to have come to Gettysburg entertaining the idea of unleashing an offensive strike, and on the morning of July 2nd, he does indeed appear to have briefly flirted with the notion of launching an attack. In the end, he decided to dig in his heels and await Robert E. Lee's next move. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. 
What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. Once George Meade completed his reconnaissance on the morning of July 2nd, he had a general plan as to where he would deploy each of his corps. Seated at a small table in the Leicester house, Captain Payne and Lieutenant Bissell worked on making hasty but relatively accurate copies of the crude maps they had drawn while accompanying Meade on their moonlit ride. Meade personally indicated to the two men where he wanted each corps placed. On the right end of the line, Slocum's 12th Corps would hold the wooded slopes of Culp's Hill and extend their position down along Rock Creek. The curve of the fishhook would be manned by Wadsworth's battered 1st Corps Division on the northern end of Culp's Hill and Howard's 11th Corps troops dug in on Cemetery Hill. Behind the 11th Corps troops on Cemetery Hill were the other two 1st Corps divisions, whose men would feel more than a bit put out when they learned that Meade had relieved Doubleday and replaced him with Major General John Newton of the 6th Corps. Doubleday had performed well enough on July 1st in an extremely difficult situation, but Meade neither liked nor trusted Doubleday, and after hearing Otis Howard's report, in which he claimed the 1st Corps had ignominiously fled on July 1st, Meade placed Newton in command, and Doubleday went back to his division. The 1st Corps soldiers saw this as not only an undeserved rebuke of Doubleday, but also an unfair judgment of their own performance on July 1st. One of them later wrote that Doubleday, during his brief tenure as Corps commander, quote, displayed skill and courage which the dullest private could not help commending. The men considered Doubleday entitled to command of the Corps, and they were disgusted when they learned that a stranger had been put over them. Be that as it may, at Cemetery Hill, the Federal line bent sharply southward, with Hancock's 2nd Corps extending the line down Cemetery Ridge. Dan Sickles was ordered to place his 3rd Corps beyond Hancock and secure the high ground of Little Round Top at the far left end of the line. Meade's old command, the 5th Corps, now under George Sykes, was posted in reserve on the Baltimore Pike behind Cemetery Hill. That left only John Sedgwick's big 6th Corps, which on the morning of July 2nd was still in the midst of its epic 38-mile forced march to Gettysburg, and so it had not yet arrived on the battlefield. So those were Meade's proposed troop dispositions as he bent over the table in the widow Leicester's house, where Payne and Bissell were making copies of their maps. Now you can have a discussion with someone about the Federal's famous Fishhook line of defense at Gettysburg. But to really sound like you know what you're talking about, you'll probably also need to throw in something about the advantages of operating on interior lines and the disadvantages of operating on exterior lines. Basically, the Federal's fishhook line of defense 
provided Meade with strong interior lines, which would allow him to easily and quickly shift and shuffle troops to threaten parts of his position if need be. It was the difference between starting inside the arc of a circle and moving to a certain point along the arc of the circle and being outside the circle, so to speak, and having to go the long way around in order to get to the same point. In other words, Meade could reinforce, communicate with, or coordinate movements from one end of his line to the other more quickly and easily than could Robert E. Lee, whose army occupied a longer exterior line position. If that doesn't make sense, just imagine standing in the center of your house and walking to the back door, while someone standing outside at the front door has to run all the way around the house in order to get to the back door. Yep, so there you go. Not only did Meade have the advantage of good ground to defend, but the position also offered him the added advantage of interior lines, while Lee would be operating on exterior lines. An officer in the Second Corps would describe it in a letter home a few days later in this way, quote, The advantages of our position were that the commanding general could look over almost the whole line, a rare thing in this country, and that moving on the court of the circle while the enemy moved on the arc, we could reinforce any part of the line from any part much quicker than they could. In discussing the advantages of interior lines and the disadvantages of exterior lines, one thing we don't think gets enough attention is Robert E. Lee's idea on the night of July 1st to move Ewell's Corps. As y'all recall, we talked previously about how, after the first day's fighting was over, Lee twice floated the idea of pulling Ewell's Corps out of its position at the north end of the Confederate line and swinging it around to the southern end of the line. But each time Lee proposed the idea, he allowed himself to be talked out of it, apparently against his better judgment. But why did Lee propose such a major movement in the first place? We think it was undoubtedly because he realized that by allowing Yule's Corps to remain where it was, bent around the outside of the northern end of the federal position, that it would make it much more difficult to reinforce, communicate with, or coordinate the movements of the various parts of his army. In other words, Robert E. Lee understood the disadvantages of operating on exterior lines, and he knew that moving Yule's Corps and straightening his line would have solved the problem. In any case, as we've said, each time Lee brought up the idea of moving Yule's Corps, he allowed himself to be talked out of it. It's ironic that later on, harsh criticism would be leveled at Yule for supposedly waffling and not attacking Cemetery Hill on July 1st, when in reality, Yule actually displayed sound judgment in that matter, and it was Robert E. Lee who waffled with regard to the idea of moving Yule's corps around to the other end of the Confederate line that night. The 
The 11th Corps' Carl Schurz saw George Meade on the night of July 1st after the commanding general arrived on Cemetery Hill. Schurz thought Meade looked tired and worn. Schurz would later say, quote, There was nothing in his appearance or his bearing that might have made the hearts of the soldiers warm up to him. Nothing of pose, nothing stagey about him. His mind was evidently absorbed by a hard problem. But this simple, cold, serious soldier with his businesslike air did inspire confidence. Schertz noted that the curious officers and soldiers who crowded around to get a look at Meade, quote, turned away, not enthusiastic, but clearly satisfied. In answer to Schertz's question about the forces available, Meade said, In the course of the day, I expect to have about 95,000. Enough, I guess, for this business. Then, with a look around, George Meade added, Well, we may as well fight it out here just as well as anywhere else.